and welcome to episode 59 of the Romantic About Baseball podcast. I am your host, Adam C. McKinnon, joined as often by the Statmaster General, Jim Passon Jr. Jim. Hey, hey, long time no talk. It has been. been a while. It's been a while, man. It's uh, it, I, it, it kind of snuck up on me, too, because I was looking at the last time we released an episode, and we haven't done an episode together since since Calcaterra's episode a month ago. So we, uh, you, you, for those who can't see, and I'm just going to say this and you're just going to take my word for it. Jim has grown a full head of hair. Um, (laughs) he, uh, he, he looks, he looks a little disheveled, but we're going to take it at face value. Um, who, who does look so fresh and so clean though, is, is our guest, uh, old friend alert, uh, Eric Nussbaum, uh, back, back, uh, the sequel, for the to uh, with uh, stealing home coming out on paperback, Eric. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's nice to be back. It feels like we're in exactly the same place we were a little over a year ago when we last did this. Four feet to that to my right last time. So that I I've would, moved along. I've been doing pretty good. My That's desk progress. has rotated forty five <laughs> degrees. Uh, it's uh, and uh, yeah, it, it's been it's been a year. You last joined us on episode twenty five. When we discussed your uh, bad bent, Jim, this is back when we had like a form to the show. I'm using air quotes. Um, and, uh, and you, uh, you know, stealing home, I think had either just come out or was about to come out. It was about a year ago and I think it was about to come out. And, uh, since then, uh, not a big deal, you know, it's only come out, uh, you know, stealing home Los, An- Los Angeles, the Dodgers, and the lives caught in between. Earned the Saber Seymour Medal for uh, best baseball book of uh, book of history, best book of baseball history for the year 2020, and is the only five star rated book on the Romantic About Baseball's book review series. Um, Am I the only one? You're the only one. Now I need you to validate me here and tell me why the second one, why the, why that is more important than any other accolade you've ever received. Well, I mean, um, the fact that you haven't five starred your co-podcast hosts books (laughs) really says it all. (laughs) You haven't. (laughs) Yeah, I totally did. Jim. Anyway, next question. Um, Uh, well, that was a great episode. I can't wait to get to number sixty. Yeah, starting here soon. <laughs> Cut. The wow. um, but it, honestly, it's been it. It really has been a wild ride. I I was so fortunate to read to read it, and it was uh, it was it was an awesome book. How did uh, how's the last year been in that regard? It's been a very long and strange year. Uh, it's, it's really hard to just disassociate the book from like you know living in COVID and being at home, um, my kids being at home. Mm-hmm. But I mean, people have read the book and enjoyed it, which is amazing. You know, I think when I first spoke to you, I don't think it had come out yet. Yeah, and so like I was terrified. People are going to hate it. I'm going to be embarrassed. It's going to be a disaster. My life's going to be ruined. You know, the whole thing where you just run through the terrible scenarios in your head constantly and like somebody had told me beforehand that like the worst case scenario is that we would just get politely ignored realistically which i was also like preparing myself for Mm -hmm. and i it's been 
like well received by people who have read it, and you know, obviously, Saber people liked it. Um, it's been it's been great. It's given me something positive to focus on and think about, um, especially in the early part of the pandemic. It was really nice to have like a sense of purpose. Like I'm going to promote the hell out of my book on Twitter, and that's what I'm going to do with my life. Yeah, that's <laughs> <laughs> what we all grow up wanting to do, right? It's, it's the dream. <laughs> I'm terrible. I haven't finished the book and I pre-ordered it. <laughs> I, 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 I don't read any books, right? Um, I'm, I'm, I, I'm, the, I'm terrible. I've read my own book a few times because I have to, to get through it, but I haven't read anybody else's really, except for yours. I'm about halfway through, right? Um, what, Second half is, is faster. It starts to I, pick up a little bit. It's, it's amazing <laughs> the setup though. It really is amazing the setup that we're, where I'm at now, right? Um, well, how, you, how you how you get the characters built in and everything else, man? I love it, and I'm 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 actually I think I polished off another twenty pages today, which for my wife is like fifteen minutes. She's a speed reader. For me, it's like an hour. I just but I get lost in it. That's pretty nice, man. I love it. The um, I appreciate that. Spe- you know, in speaking of that too, like for those who maybe haven't haven't read it, or maybe you know it, it's on their list, or or they just haven't. Can you kind of? You know, uh, can you kind of bring people in and kind of remind us what the what the story really entails, and kind of and you know, give us the give us the synopsis of what the book and what what the book's about. You got it. So the synopsis is: it is the story of how LA got Dodger Stadium, which sounds pretty basic, but it's actually a dramatic and tense and complicated story about family and the red scare and immigration and kind of crazy ambitious politicians um it mainly follows this one family the arechiga family who immigrated from mexico and ended up in la um and this kind of do-gooder la activist named frank wilkinson and their intersecting journeys on the path to kind of a modern la in the late 50s mm-hmm it's that's quite the journey that frank wilkerson takes too i mean it's, it's kind of bonkers uh man it, it, it's although it's i to, to imagine that it's what the when he takes his trip um when he first gets out of college gosh what's that about 1930s probably like 33 34 something like yeah. that yeah and to be able to cover that much ground yeah it's Quite life. you know, and one thing about it is that you find and what a difference a year makes where you talk about like you, you really summed up, you know, over ambitious politicians, political misinformation, uh, the sort of drumming up of extreme viewpoints and things like that. It's really you had no idea the next year was about to happen. And yet you look at it and you think about the parallels that, that, that it draws to, to, to modern life in a lot of ways. It's a frightfully topical book <laughs> in the late 40s and 50s for the most part. Uh, I, as I was researching the book and writing it, more researching it, I was like, ooh. Mm-hmm. I kept on having that feeling like, wow, that, that sounds familiar. Yep. Um, you get into like the Red Scare politics and like the fear mongering and um, just the questions about institutional racism or like housing and where people should live in a city and how cities are developed, all these questions that we're still dealing with and maybe more confronting kind of head on now, but they were really animating life back then too. 
Right. It's what I, one of the things that, you know, after I read it and then I went back and and kind of, you know, hit some of the, the high points, uh, getting, you know, getting ready to talk to you, uh, was the, the institutional racism part really and the, and the relationship between, uh, people of color and the police in particular in the local jurisdictions and the, the way that it basically the system kind of sets them up to fail in a way. It really does resonate today when you look at uh, the modern landscape of cities, urban renewal, gentrification. Like you said, it's a frightfully topical book. And I wondered during your, there's a lot of um, rabbit holes with that type of thing. This book required a ton of research. How do you keep your, you know, how did you keep yourself from going down those rabbit holes and how, what was the, what were the guardrails while you were researching? Like, oh man, like, well, I can't go too much further. I got to keep moving, you know? I mean, as I was researching, I just went down them. I totally did. Like I, <laughs> I would say that for like the, there was like one calendar year that I was a complete, the lost crazy person like i was so deep into the research of this book like i was dreaming about the people in the book every night it was, it was nuts <laughs> and then so like if there was a rabbit hole about like redlining in la in the 40s i was gonna just like fall to the bottom of it right uh, but ultimately like the task became how do you synthesize all that information and how do you put it into the book in a way that will allow it to you know make these things clear that you need to make clear and also move the story along that became the real like challenge is where where do you like draw the line in terms of what you include in the story mm -hmm. so are you taking basically notes then uh, and and just kind of do you just build your own say chapters in your notes to try to piece this thing together how do you go about building a book like this I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's partly like you're thinking in terms of story first. Like for me, I really wanted to have it feel like you're reading a story about human beings and that their choices are kind of moving the action forward because that's how I think that the best books work, like novels, fiction books, like, and nonfiction books. You want to see characters develop and you want to see how the choices they make and the things they do and their personalities impact their lives moving forward and affect the action of the book. So thinking about it in those terms, you know, it's pretty chronological. You want to tell the story in order from more or less beginning to end. Um, I really like thought about it in terms of people more than in terms of like, I need to put this historical fact in there. Like, obviously like there's historical facts you need to put in like the Dodgers moved to LA after the 57 season. That's a historical fact, yeah. but like, I was more interested in seeing it like through Walter O'Malley's eyes, for example, like what's O'Malley thinking when he makes that choice? What are the forces that are causing him to, you know, entertain this possibility of moving across the country and what's pulling him back towards Brooklyn? So I, I tried to think of it that way as much as I could. What was um, the last time we talked, the book hadn't come out yet. Now that it has, What's the most surprising feedback you've gotten about the characters in particular? Like, you know, when you write the book, you have a certain 
way that you see the characters and and then you know I've I've talked to other authors when when they get feedback from readers they're taking things a different way like they sort of interpret the characters the characters come to life in a different way than they expected did you experience any of that with any of the feedback you've gotten like was there a character that like people talk about way more than you thought they would um i would say i don't know if there really is I think, you know, Frank Wilkinson, people definitely talk about a lot. Um, mm-hmm. He's a fascinating character. Mm-hmm. And the the kind of two principal characters in the book are Frank and Abrana Arechiga. And, like, those are the characters people talk to me about the most. Because um, they're, I mean, first of all, they're not characters, I should say. They're real human sure. beings. And yeah. I'm reflecting their lives as accurately as I possibly could. Um, but those are the two that people seem to come back to. I'm surprised sometimes by who, you know, who Frank resonates with and who Abrano resonates with. Um, there's some side characters that I really like that people don't talk about at all that I'm like, wow, you don't want to talk about Fritz Burns or um, <laughs> whoever else it is. But, you know, Willie Davis, I get into mm-hmm. later on in the book. But, but like, I've been really like pleasantly, not pleasantly surprised, but just pleased by how how Frank and Abadana have resonated with people because they resonated so deeply with me. Mm -hmm. As you know, today has some historical significance related to your book, you know, today, 1962, 59 years ago, it's the first game played at Dodger stadium. And it's April 10th. That's right. Hey, come on, man. Uh, Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. That's I, I I thought you were going to be a hard booking for this, for this, for this day. So, I'm, uh, um, so today has that historical significance. So I'm thinking to myself, you know, uh, is, is next year will be 60 years since the opening of the stadium and everything that led up to it. L- when you look at that span of time, so much has changed and yet the story just still res- hits so hard and resonates. How do, do you feel like, you know, based on, how do you feel looking back on it now, now that it's 60 years from the first, from the first game? Like, I mean, it's crazy how long that is. Like when you think about the Dodgers in Brooklyn, cause like the Dodgers for so many people are a Brooklyn team, right? Like they're mm-hmm. the Brooklyn Dodgers and they'll always will be. And there's always going to be like a genre of books about the tragedy of the Brooklyn Dodgers leaving or whatever else it is. And like the Dodgers in Brooklyn didn't exist for 60 years, really. Like, right sort of a team like you know the superbas and stuff but like the real heyday of the brooklyn dodgers was like 35 years ish and now we're talking about 60 years in la like that's so much history that first of all mostly takes place after my book you know well no it's more than 60 years in la it's six years of dodger stadium right 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 <laughs> the last scene of the book really is the opening of the ballpark so like uh sorry jim for the spoiler but but it just shows how long the Dodgers have been in LA how you know kind of just how it's a lot of time yeah I mean that's it's it's timeless it is it's a lot of time but like it just makes me think you know 
I was reading a piece um, by uh, a guy, Jason Rossi, and, and he and he lists out 15 instances where major sports teams, n- not just baseball, but just sports teams in general, because the big thing now is the is the taxpayer funding that goes into sure. stadiums, right? And he just it, it totaled up over seven billion dollars. Almost a billion of it coming from the new Texas stadium slash warehouse, whatever you want to call it. And uh, I'm not going to name the sponsor name, but you know, the, the thing in Texas where everybody's just walking around without a mask now. Cause it's cool, I guess. I don't know. Um, so your what your book shows is the costs that don't show up on a balance sheet. Like, sure. We talk about like, you know, I, I'm in Cobb County, Georgia, where there was a, a everyone, Anyone who's a Braves fan welcomed the Braves, but pretty much no one else did. Uh, it's pretty transparent how why they moved where they did. And a lot of these stadium deals are that way. But uh, I'm curious, you know, we talk, we spend so much time obsessing over the balance sheet. We don't talk about the human costs that go into these massive projects that go to private businesses that don't really benefit anyone but them. So I'm curious, like, it almost made me think like there's gotta be like 10 sequels to stealing home out there. And, and, and we don't even know it. Do you, do you, do you like see this? And do you, do you feel that way at all? I mean, I feel like there's a million sequels you could write to the book mm-hmm. about other cities and other stadiums and the drama that plays out over and over again. Sometimes it's about taxpayer dollars. Sometimes it's about, neighborhoods changing and gentrification sometimes it's about this sort of like myth of like an economic boom that's going to come with the stadium that doesn't really come mm-hmm. uh, you know a lot of part-time jobs for stadium staff is not really like what helps the community in the long run you know a few restaurants outside of a stadium seasonal you know up and down the like serious economic studies have kind of shown that that's really overblown mm-hmm. um I, I don't think I would write one of those books. I think I've, I've written one now. But um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a question about like what we value as a society. You know, it's who gets preferential treatment from the government. Where do we want to put our resources into collectively? And those are open questions. You know, I love baseball and sports. So like, I'm going to go enjoy the ballpark and my taxpayers help fund taxpayer dollars have helped fund Safeco field or whatever it is, or T-Mobile mm-hmm. park, excuse me. And like, <laughs> that's fine with me kind of, cause I like love going to Mariner games, but, um, I can see why somebody might be annoyed by it. Yep. Yep. I, I hear you. Um, like for us back in Montana, we had, uh, in Billings, we had to fund the park for the Billings Reds and, uh, I know uh, one of the frustrating things for people back uh, back at home now is that the minor league system has changed now, and the Billings Reds are no longer a Reds affiliate anymore. Or the well, the Mustangs, right? They're no longer the Reds affiliate anymore. And they only built that stadium like 15 years ago, and now they're ticked off, right? It was great because it. I mean, this the park that they built around there and uh, everything else. Uh, the kids that got to play in that stadium and whatnot. The, the community actually, I think, enjoyed being a part of paying for it because they got to really enjoy it. I think a majority of the population was happy, but nah, not today. Right. So, but it's brutal. Like imagine if, you know, the Rainiers left or were just like taken away from Tacoma, it would, it leaves a hole. And it also, 
just like on an economic level leaves an even bigger hole. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, it's just, they're trying to figure out. Cause I mean, now they're, um, I don't, they're not an independent league. I don't know if that's how they de- de- define them now in billings. They're part of the, uh, uh, prospects league or whatever it ends draft up draft league or now, whatever right? they call yeah, it yeah draft yeah. league yeah and uh and so they're trying to figure out what kind of hit they're going to take off of it right it's it's now that it's no longer really actually affiliated directly at a major league team um did they they feel kind of like you know hey we're heading down the indie ball way well you know indie ball can be fun to be at right it could be pretty fun to it can entertain you to have some great fun nights and stuff i hear and and whatnot but um it doesn't really put a lot of tails in the seat when they're not really tied to a team so we're going to see how the, the the economy around that area works here pretty soon and i'll be looking forward to the feedback i get from a lot of my friends if they're going to the game still if they feel like the quality has gone downhill or if the ballpark's gone backwards so well, so much of it is feedback right you know, like you just said, Jim, like we're getting feedback and Eric, I kind of want to tie this back to the book a little bit too. Uh, you know, so much of what you're doing here, you're, you're separated by the story starts in the late 1800s, you know, where the, where the book begins, like so much of what you're doing here. And I think this is the most, um, for me was the most impressive part of the book. It was, was how you're able to kind of, uh, bring the characters to life and, but, but some of that, when you're separated by that much time, you're sort of filling in a lot of blanks. It feels like, you know what I mean? You're, and how, how did you, uh, as it time got closer and closer, was there a, a lot of just like digging through public records, digging through documents and how much of it was actually like talking to people, getting feedback? Did you, t- did you, uh, talk to people about like Dodger, the process leading up to the stadium arrival uh, how much was like human interaction versus like documentation? Yeah, it was a mix. I mean, as much as I can, I like to talk to people because my background is really much more as like a reporter than mm-hmm. as a researcher. I wrote for magazines and stuff like that. And that's much more of my comfort zone. Right. Um, I also like human stories. I think like you're going to get a much more profound story from somebody recollecting their childhood than you are from a public document most of the time. You know, mm-hmm. the interplay of the two is really like where the magic happens, I guess, um, to use a really terrible phrase. But oh, man. <laughs> like, I, I did both. I, you know, I spoke to as many people as I could and listened to as many people as I could. And then I did the thing where you go into archives and dig through files and files of paperwork and look for correspondence to city council members or, you know, records of public meetings or whatever it is that's going to help you tell the story. Where are you doing that at? Is that like the the libraries or what? University libraries have a lot of it in LA. Um, Frank Wilkinson, who we've spoken at a lot, his, his papers are in this library. That's an independent nonprofit library called the Southern California library, um, which is devoted to a lot of like labor history in, in LA um, and sort of activist history. It's a really cool institution. Um, and then, you know, some of it is like city, literally city hall or like the, you know, county records building, stuff like that. And how did you know to go about those directions to find that? Is that something from uh, living in the area? Is that, uh, or is that just part of the research? I mean, I'm from LA and I was living there when I wrote the book, but like, I didn't know how to do this stuff. It was a lot of like trial and error. Um, 
looking at other books and looking at like their note sections in the back and seeing where they got stuff mm. that helped just calling people and asking for help, <laughs> um, Googling around frantically. Um, you learn like looking at like really like good academic books and seeing their notes really helps. So like you'll see a book about public housing in LA, which is a big part of this book. And um, there's like a appendix in the back or, you know, works cited and they reference, I looked at the, papers of council member john holland at cal state los angeles so i was like oh i want to go check out those papers Maybe there's something good for me in there so i'll go to cal state la and i'll you know file a request with the person which i didn't know how to do any of that either and um they pretty much just let you in like if you're asked nicely um you can see stuff and then you just get these files and you learn how to work the system a little bit and you sit at a desk with a pencil and you look through them and you're very gentle and it's pretty cool. I mean, a lot of it's really mind-numbingly boring, but then you find something magical and you're like, wow, this is great. That's cool. So it basically, hey, as long as you act like you're in there, well, as long as you're serious, right? They're going to be like, oh, okay, come on in here, have a seat. We'll bring it right out to you. Pretty much. Like some institutions are more organized than others. Like UCLA, you have to like request ahead of time for a specific date. And they have like a facility off campus where they like bring the files from. So like, you know, you're coming in this day and they'll have them ready for you. And then you go and you sit in the room and they watch you to make sure you're not like, you know, spitting on them or whatever. It is. <laughs> and is that like a charge or is that just something that they offer? It's free. I'll be damned. Free to uh, the world. A charge to like make copies or whatever. But um, okay. yeah, it's free. Damn. It's for, for your next book, Jim. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I'm not writing any more books. I can't give any five star reviews. So. <laughs> That's right. I've, I've, sorry, sorry, world. I've begun the embargo on, on the uh, hidden ball very trick. Romantic. <laughs> not the slightest. We're we're sixty. We're almost sixty episodes in. The romance says we're we're, yeah. we're way past the honeymoon phase now. <laughs> we're only romantic about baseball. That's right. <laughs> we're platonic <laughs> about each other. Um. <clears throat> So, you know, one of the things you mentioned specifically, and we've talked about this, this character, uh, and, and again, we use the word character loosely because it is a real person, um, you know, Frank Wilkinson. What, to me, reading the book was one of the most dynamic characters. It, it, he, he goes through, like, transformations, both on his own doing by taking this journey you know, away from his life of, you know, life of privilege. You know, he grew up a wealthy part of town. Um, and then he's forced to transform when the the government, the Red Scare, the becoming a sort of victim of the Red Scare and communism and things of that nature. Um, what was it like researching someone like you know, like him where, you know, obviously the, the government had an interest in, you know, maybe in, in misinformation and, and, in, and really humiliating him in some ways. Did you find conflicting information along the way or, or with, with him? Not too much. I mean, yeah. Frank was a pleasure to research and write mm -hmm. about like an absolute pleasure he has three kids who are all still alive and all were, and his, and his wife, his second wife, Donna, who's still alive and she's in her nineties. And they were all so generous with their time and like so wonderful um, and so honest and raw about him as a person. 
So like getting that opportunity to speak with them and to hear about Frank and his warts and his, you know, just overall personality was, it was great. Um, he also left like a thousand page oral history that he recorded for uh, UCLA's oral history collection. And I could just dig through that. And like, he also like saved every single piece of paper he ever wrote on. And, like everything was there for Frank. It was, it was honestly like, it was great. And then you could go back and cross check a little bit with like his FBI file, which is extensive because he was tracked for decades by the right. FBI. Mm-hmm. Um, not all of which is easy to access. Some of it's lost. The FBI is saying that it's lost. I don't know. Sure. Uh, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. <laughs> but like, so somebody like him, you know, the misinformation about Frank was, was there. You know, it was prevalent in LA in the 50s. Some of it wasn't even misinformation. He wasn't a communist party. Like, that's yeah, right. true. Mm-hmm. But like how it was used, how his activism was kind of spun in the media and in, you know, hearings and stuff like that was extremely um, transparently biased at the time, even like as you get into like his later battle um, over First Amendment rights that's all public record too, because it happened like the Supreme court cases right there to read. Um, so yeah, it was great. I mean, he was like great to research and great to write about for that reason. Also, he was a completely fascinating person whose life changed in these dramatic ways. And he was a very dramatic person. Like he expressed himself in letters to his family and like over the top terms, like everything about him, it was like made for TV. So it was great. It's, it's, it, he's one of those characters that yeah, it, it, it didn't feel like immediately when the book starts, you're, 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 uh, you're really drawn to Abrana, uh, and her family and, and everything about them. But then, you know, when Frank enters, it's almost like you, you, the chapters are very short for those who don't know the chapters in this book are like rapid fire chapters. And, when you turn the page and you get to a Frank chat, it's like, Oh, okay, cool, cool. Like you're, you're excited to revisit this plot point. So I know for me reading it, I, it started out as with the Arichigas and I know I butchered that pronunciation. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, it starts there, but I, I feel, it does feel like Frank sort of swallows up the story. It's at many points during the book. And, uh, yeah. he was just a fascinating character. What's interesting is about this book is that like there's certain points in it and not this book, but like kind of the action of the story. Um, and this was a big challenge of writing the book actually is that there's points where you really like where the sort of action of the events is being driven by one set of people and then it's being driven by another set of people, right? You have, you know, the settlement of these communities and their development and that's the Rechiga story. And then you have the kind of, public housing push where they're evicted to build public housing. And that's Frank, you know, doing the evicting. And then you have the red scare and sort of the collapse of public housing in LA. And that's Frank as the victim of it. And then it sort of leaves the Arechigas in a strange position. So you're sort of like kind of shifting back and forth between whose life is driving the action. And that, that was challenging because you need to like keep track of both sets of characters uh, throughout the book. Yeah. So like kind of, that's part of why I have short chapters actually is, is so you can 
we can do that. Well, and, and you're not even mentioning the third plot point, which is the character I had most misconstrued going into the book. It was Walter O'Malley it is the other plot point of the, of the Dodgers in general and, and the, and the move to LA. And, you know, if you didn't know any better or your only source of baseball history is Ken Burns, you know, Walter O'Malley is this thief in the night that, that robbed Brooklyn of the dot. I think we talked about this on the last show, you know, like, he just robbed Brooklyn of their team and took the heart out of the bedroom in New York and whatever. Right. Um, but when I read this book and I got to the end, I, it, it really, it didn't necessarily humanize. He's a baseball owner, you know, and a team owner. So it didn't, it, it I wouldn't say it portrayed him as a much more pragmatic businessman, just making a business decision more so than anything else. He was a fascinating guy. Like I, I kind of came in with like some skepticism about O'Malley, probably because of all the Brooklyn stuff, like wow, wow, Walter O'Malley, you know, there's the joke about if you see Hitler and O'Malley and Stalin at a bar and you only have two bullets, you know, what do you do? You shoot O'Malley twice. <laughs> like that's the uh, famous Brooklyn joke. But so like and there's a lot of a lot of ink spilled about him. Mm-hmm. So I I mean Reading about his choices, you know, he obviously did take the team out of Brooklyn, which is heartbreaking for people in Brooklyn. Like, I lived in Seattle when the Sonics left. It was brutal. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, this isn't a book about that. It's a book about L.A. And the choice was not just him. You know, he had a very specific vision for what he wanted. He had a very specific vision for what he thought a ballpark should be, which is a privately owned, baseball-only stadium with certain architectural traits and lots of parking lots Mm -hmm. and he built it. Like he really like for him, it wasn't really about the city. It was about like, I have this dream for what baseball should be. And he was right. Like he was totally right about it. You know, all the stadiums that got built in the sixties and the late fifties, other than Dodger stadium are gone because they're all crappy multi-sport stadiums. Um, O'Malley was a visionary in his own way. Um, he also did, you know, kind of put the final nail in the coffin of three communities that once existed in L.A. and were destroyed initially to make way for public housing and then ultimately to make way for the Dodgers. Right. It, 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 it was the what got me was that, like I said, if, if you didn't know any better, you would figure he was the, the nail, the hammer and the guy pushing the nail in, you know, but you, what, what this book does is really illustrate how it, from the, from the Los Angeles perspective, how, and I say this uh, gingerly, the small of a role he actually had in the whole uh, theme scheme of it. You know, he was, like you said, the visionary, he played a part in it, but like, I don't think if I didn't read this book, if you had told me like, hey, you know, Walter O'Malley, basically, you could have told me that Walter O'Malley showed up and physically forced all of these people out himself. And I would I would probably believe you because that's just the narrative. You know what I mean? So the, this book does a really in, good job and it paints a really interesting picture of O'Malley by how little ink is spilled, to use your term, how little ink is spilled on his behalf as opposed to the the communities that were affected by it. Yeah. I mean, I think that 
there's a very like condensed version of the story that you get kind of I guess tossed around, which is like the Dodgers came from Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. O'Malley stole the Dodgers from Brooklyn and then he kicked out the community to build the stadium. But that undersells the tragedy of it to me. Like the tragedy of it is so much bigger than Walter O'Malley in baseball. It's a tragedy of, you know, racism. It's a tragedy of corruption in LA politics. It's a tragedy of all these big screwed up forces that were really like affecting the way LA grew as a city in the fifties power, you know, just pure power and, and all this stuff that, that brought O'Malley to LA. I mean, the need LA had this quenching need to grow and to be a big league town. They always said, we're going to be a major league city. What the hell does that mean? LA already had double the population of Boston before the Dodgers came. Like Boston had two teams, Dodgers, you know, LA didn't have the Dodgers yet. Like, LA was already a big league city. It just didn't have a big league team, but there was this need for everybody to like feel like they got that East Coast approval. That validation. And yeah, that validation totally like affected the way people acted and the way that the city acted. It's kind of crazy when you think about it now. Yeah, it's it's uh, oh sorry Jim, go ahead. No, uh, no, I'm just going to say I'll be damned. And then on top of it, I was kind of looking forward to the part in the book where O'Malley actually went up there and started taking people and just like walking them out like nah you don't live here anymore but i guess that doesn't actually happen so yeah it's, oh, it's pretty gnarly yeah. <laughs> it's, it's got spikes on the end of it and stuff well, yeah <laughs> about you know about those ev- the evictions in particular were were a, a spectacle like you know we we talked about and it talked about it you know the first time you came in like they these were televised you know these these people coming coming out and the media in general, not just you know the, tel- the television media, the the print media, plays a really significant role in this story. And I wonder, again, you know, sort of tying it back to your earlier questions, like you see the you see the role the media has in how things are portrayed now. You know what I mean? In, in terms of you know now taxpayer funding for stadiums is bad, but you know they're still going to do it. Um, and we don't how the what do you think the role of the talk about the role of the media in the book and how do you think the role of the media today in say similar situations do you do you see parallels in that yeah i don't think it's changed that much i mean the form has changed mm-hmm. right it was newspapers then and like local tv was just starting out like local news but i mean la had like six newspapers in the 50s and they all had their own political take and you know a few of them were deeply entrenched conservative uh some of them were the la times is owned by the chandler family who was very powerful and had all this real estate and they basically just used the paper as a way to leverage their their fortune um that's not that different from how the media works now it's just now it's tv channels and websites and social media um a lot of stuff got published that was fake that happens now you know a lot of it was a sort of gross mutually beneficial relationship between elected officials and journalists that they would kind of feed off each other and help each other out and scratch each other's back. And that still happens too. Like it's pretty, it was pretty depressing to like read all this stuff and do my research and think about how little things have changed and just how, you know, the sort of fake news question is exactly the same as it was in the fifties in LA. Right. With the red scare is, you know, QAnon is, you know, all of the fake news that we get the, from 
a lot of different sources. I wonder, though, from a social media perspective, and yeah, from, from a modern media perspective, do you think that in the modern media climate, where there's so much of it, like the questions remain the same, but like, do you think that uh, this would have gone any differently? Like if the same sort of situation came up and let's say the, the Arichigas, you know, found some kind of traction in social media or something like that. Do you think this would have turned out any different or do you think this would have gone pretty much the same? I think it would have gone the same. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm being cynical. Like the Arichigas did an incredible job leveraging their, you know, their story, right? They had a really good claim. They had a home. It was theoretically taken to make public housing by the government. They refused to leave. They protested saying, you're not paying us enough for our property. You know, they got kind of screwed on the, um, by a judge who sort of like downgraded the amount they were going to make um, for the sale of their homes. And you know, when the public housing project fell through, this is a complicated story, so I feel like I'm bouncing around. But No, you're fine. They, they stayed and they fought and they mounted this legal battle and they mounted this battle in the press. And, you know, there was a lot of support for them in L.A. Um, it was very much a divisive issue. And there are plenty of people who, who thought they were right. And it wasn't just a, along racial lines either. There are plenty of people who were small property owners, homeowners who thought, wow, why, why should a homeowner have their home taken under false pretenses and then sold to a private business? Like, that would be terrible. Imagine, you know, if you're a homeowner, your home gets taken to theoretically build a freeway or a public housing project, something that, you know, is ostensibly for the public good, and then the government decides, nah, I don't think so, and they change their mind and they sell it to an out-of-town businessman right. to build a sports stadium. I mean, what a travesty. So, like, people saw that. Um, that wasn't, like, hidden from view because there wasn't social media at the time. That said, you know, maybe being able to be unfiltered and kind of broadcastings on their own would have helped. But I look at the way things are going in society now, and I don't really see a huge difference. So I don't know that social media would make a difference there. Yeah. I was, I'm always curious about scope, you know what I mean? Uh, like, you know, the, the lack of, it's interesting how the narrative is so like you, you get about halfway through the book and it doesn't, it doesn't even take very long. I wouldn't even say halfway through the book. Once you start to see, like you, when they talk about the, you talk about the newspapers and the connections and the LA times and everything like that, um, you know, pretty early on that they don't have much of a chance. Like that, and that's what I think probably the real tragedy for me in this story was like, you know, like their, their fight and their tenacity, like you're rooting for them so hard, but you just, for me anyway, like the, through the, I was just like, I know they don't, I mean, I know how this turns out. It's, it's, I was going to say, it's right. It's just, it's almost like the, their tenacity and ferocity makes it even more heartbreaking. You know, uh, Brana's in particular, and uh, I think that's where the the book really ex excels. It really like you're you're really like feeling for it like all the way through. You know, yeah. I mean, it's tragic. You know, it's she said said later on that it was the most tragic thing that happened in her life. I mean, obviously, most people don't get into this like defining public conflict with 
you know, a city and a sports team and become the face of resistance and a movement like she did. But she's a woman who lived a very hard life. She lost a child. She lost a husband young, you know, and this thing really like destroyed her in a lot of ways. And it was a decade long fight that she had and her husband well had and their kids had like, imagine fighting for 10 years to keep your home from a bunch of people who were trying to take it away from you to build a baseball stadium. Right. She, and I love you, baseball. I am romantic about baseball. Uh, <laughs> no, that's good. <laughs> You're and in the right place. That when they got there, right? It was just it was just bare land, right? I mean, when they were getting into the Palo Verde area, they, they were by, they built their houses by hand. Yep. <laughs> right. There was nothing there. I mean, there were some houses from other people. There were some sort of subdivided plots that you could buy, but like you know, community that had been underserved to say the least by the city also like it was the kind of thing where oh well you know this community doesn't have good infrastructure and streetlights and the buildings aren't up to code because like no city officials have gone in there to make sure the buildings are up to code or like help to install that infrastructure like it was a self-fulfilling prophecy of destruction yeah that's right that's that's about as much of a like self-fulfilling prophecy of destruction it's that, that that's that's powerful because it really does feel that way. Like you you and it, and it echoes too to modern times. Like you look at look at the some of the cities that are funding these these big stadiums now. Like you look at like cities like Detroit. You look at cities like I mean Arlington has a population of like four hundred thousand people. I think. Like that's in that's the bigger than I would have guessed. Arlington has four hundred thousand people. I think so. I I think so. I haven't verified that, but I mean, it was it was in an article that I read. It seemed factual. Um, but like, even still, Arlington's not the city you think. Like, oh, here's a billion dollars that we could spend on a sports stadium. Yeah, the and you know, it's it's the dollars and cents. But it, it what your what stealing home did is that. It created the the intangible element, the people element of it, uh, that and the neighborhoods that are destroyed in the process uh, to get to these stadiums. Like I think of like Cobb County, Georgia, perfect example. This was a stadium that nobody I, nobody wanted. <laughs> I mean, I'm I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. If you're a Braves fan, it's like, yeah, it's cool. I don't have to drive down the 85 to get to a game. But nobody wanted if it you're there. You're a Braves fan who lives downtown, though. Yeah, well, <laughs> exactly. Atlanta. It, it, it <laughs> there's, it, and that was the funny part is that it was so transparent that they moved it because eighty percent of their season ticket holders lived in Cobb County. You know, it, it it's so it, the what Stealing Home did is that it takes these stories that you read about in the news and it's so it's like, well, duh, that's what they did. You know, of course, because it's a, it's a whiter neighborhood. It's a more wealthy neighborhood. It's, it's in the suburbs, that type of thing. But what they don't talk about is the land and the people around it. And so I think that's what I took away from it. Is is there anything that you, is there any other one thing that you hope a reader takes away from this book the next time they see something about a stadium or they see something about gentrification, is there something that they want, you want them to tie to this book after reading it? I hope that they just like recognize that these are people and their human lives that are affected by it. individual people and families 
And that for me, that's what it's all about. Like that's what the book is about. It's about people and families. And, you know, I think if you read the book, like you'd be left with a feeling, I hope. That's my ambition. And once you've felt that, it's hard to unfeel it. Right. That's deep. I hope it works because right now it seems like half the fans, you know, they can barely even care about the player they're cheering for these days, really. It's more about the logo. About anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do. I care. I do I too. Care. It's... Um, you know, go ahead, Jim. I'm sorry. I, I know you haven't been to a ballpark probably since everything, since the books come out because of everything. Right. Um, but this isn't new to you. You, you, you've been watching, you've been planning. I, I don't even know if planning is the right way. This is something that you've known about since you were in school, right? Um, the Dodger stadium and its story. You, it wasn't something that you just up and decided two years ago. So when you were going to like Dodger Stadium or any other stadiums, how, how is it when you're there? Do you feel like you're invested in the ball game that you can just let all the rest of this stuff go while you're there or in the back of your mind the whole time while you're in the stadium? Are you thinking, son of a gun, right? I know how this got here. Is, is I mean, it- I, can, I can enjoy a baseball game uh, <laughs> in a Good. stadium. And, I, you know, I can appreciate Dodger Stadium for how beautiful it is. Uh, but, you know, when I go to Dodger Stadium in particular, I'm very much still aware of, you know, the elementary school buried underneath the center field parking lot, right? Yeah. Like, that stuff, never going to let go of that. Um, before I wrote the book, I was probably better at putting it out of my head. But now I've sat with people whose lives were destroyed, you know, and that, that changes things. Um, I think... I'm somebody who can enjoy and appreciate, you know, a baseball game at a beautiful ballpark and also hold in my head at the same time that the story behind that stadium might be complicated or that there was a cost to building it. And there's a cost to everything you enjoy. There's a cost to going to the movies. There's a cost to driving your car to the stadium, whatever it is, you know, like it's just how you kind of cope with that stuff and how much you want to think about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It does. Got a plan? Got a plan to get back to Dodger Stadium yet? You know, I went back over the summer. We took a family road trip mid-COVID to LA from Seattle area, which was brave. Adventure. <laughs> we had a you know three and a five year old, so like it's, it was an adventure. Yeah, uh, we did it, and it was fun. And I did go back to Dodger Stadium to get a COVID test there. So that was the last <laughs> time I was there. I hopefully at some point after we're vaccinated, we'll get down there. And I'll get to go to a game. They did a lot of improvements on the stadium this, well, it's supposed to be for last off season, mm-hmm. last season. And I'm really excited to see them. You know, a lot of architectural changes that I've now become like this like nerd about Dodger Stadium architecture. So now I, I need to go <laughs> see what what they've cooked up. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I, I got to tell you, I said this. You know, if you read a, a, any baseball quote book this year this is is stealing home is absolutely the one that you need to read um for me i i came into it as still still no man it's the hidden ball trick it's (laughs) i thought we covered this off the off the air before we got on here we got to this ball trick that, that's right. Uh, Hidden, stealing home it, after. Yeah, exactly. See, if you read any other book. You read you read stealing you read a chapter of the Hidden Ball Trick 
after you finish a chapter of Stealing Home. So you rotate it. It's about yeah, balance. Life's about balance, guys. Man, you'd be lost if you did that. <laughs> no, that would not work. <laughs> well, Eric, it's always awesome to talk to you. I really appreciate you taking some time out to to talk to us on this historic day. I feel like I feel like we we got an exclusive get here with like the the apex of Dodger Stadium history. You know, on, on the anniversary of the first day. Oh, the first game at Dodger home game at Dodger Stadium. So thanks for coming on, man. Thank you for having me. It's cool. I honestly, there's been so much talk about uh, this is the 40th anniversary of Fernando Valenzuela, Fernando Mania. So that's right. I hadn't even been thinking about Dodger Stadium anniversary sneaking up on us today. April April is just a a, a baseball anniversary like month. There's there's so much happening. It's Hank Aaron. It's Dodger Stadium. It's Fernando Mania. Jackie Robinson. Jackie day. Robinson. Oh, it, that's coming up in like less than a week. That's so yeah, sweet. right. Five days away. Why? Yeah. I. Oh man. Then I then know. it's just you know then then it's nothing. So October. <laughs> well, yeah. uh, depending on which which home run you would depending on which home run king you validate, you know, you could go to August and then you get you know Barry Bonds and all that stuff. But that's all you know subjective, I guess. Whatever. Um, we can just we can just celebrate the magic runner on extra innings from here jim that's here. another show all right another show all right <laughs> oh my god i hate that badger runner we you know we go around adam thinks it's a great thing i know hold up hold up don't he wants don't the second inning don't paint me into really. a corner passing <laughs> don't paint me into a corner here i said i think we should do something about extra innings i did not say a ghost runner on second was like my idea what would you do I I had an idea. I I stole an idea from Jeremy Frank, uh, the co-author of the Hidden Ball Trick, available now. Um, it, it was <laughs> where every extra inning, the team the team loses a defender. Where like you That'd know, be more fun. You see that would be that would really like speed the game up either. Right. Well, but but that's see that to me that's that's cool. Or you just do an insta home run derby. I think we did a show on this, Jim. I just want I just uh, a hockey shootout style home run derby. That's just yeah. That, that would yeah. probably be my choice, or just have ties and just like call it. That's yeah. Like, I, oh, I see. Fun. I can't do that. I can't that's do. Where I'd be. I, I can't so, do ties. I, I, I've totally comfortable with ties. Oh yep. god. Just yeah. That's the way I feel. It's like okay, if you're gonna have to do anything instead of changing what the game's actually about, then just tie. Tie after twelve. Fine, right? My solution I, that I popped up the other day is that okay, then if 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 the complaint is that we're worried about pitchers and their arms and everything else, then just give them more people, turn it into a 30 man roster and make sure that they just use the extra four people as pitchers but and that you can't activate them until the extra. Pitchers, so we can have pitching changes every inning. Yeah. That would be my ideal. Y- you know, so more pitching changes. Who, who, who hurt you people? <laughs> who hurt you people to make you the way you are? 50 man <laughs> rosters. Every pitcher faces one batter. Let That's it. Lit. You, no more than that. one. How? How? I'm not. I, I, <laughs> Everybody records now. You get to record now. You get to record. Call <laughs> people in from the stands. Go get out here. We're playing extras. We ran out of people. You get to record and out. Yeah, I'd like to. I would like to see the fans take the field. It, it, nobody would want to play extras in Philadelphia, ever. Huh? <laughs> All they right. Just replace the players with fans for extra innings. That's how they should do it. Just eighteen oh. random people. Damn it, Eric! Why are you gonna drop this on me at like one hour and one minute? Like, why are you gonna do that? Because now I'm like, this is all I'm gonna think about now. 
this is way better. It's way better than minimum blood alcohol content of like 0.05 if you're going to get out there, though. <laughs> <laughs> you, there's a three beer minimum like prior. Exactly. It, just, it reminds me of just like softball games, right? Where you got to like put your head down and spin around on the bat or whatever. Oh, yeah. And then you oh. run down. Or, oh, or you should have the major leaguers do that. Just the head, head spin around bat thing. Maybe that would solve yep. it. You should Slug have down a beer at first. Here you go. You should have like a retired non hall of famer represent each team and they should do the home run derby. Like, like you should have like a retired non hall of famer at every game. All that the just teams with steroid guys are going to crush. Oh, you, that, that's what I'm saying. So like you could have, Sammy you could cont- out there hitting the, blasts. Right. The athletics. Palmero. I'd love to see like the Cubs or athletics Bonds. or, Oh yeah. Like have the giants. Like they could just have Barry Bonds on retainer. And just like, you know what I mean? Like I would love to, but then I'd love to see someone like, you know, like, uh, like, I don't know the Braves. I mean, who do you get? Like Nick Markakis? You know, I don't know. Like uh, he, Chipper is not a hall of famer yet. Oh, he's not. Well, he, he, yeah, he will be by the time anyone comes to their senses with this. idea. I saw some video of bonds when he was first base or hitting coach for the Marlins taking BP at spring training a couple of years ago. Jeez. He could still blast him out of there. He, he's going to be blasting him out in his seventies. Yeah, he should have been a DH in the American League still at that point. He still had great, great eye when he went out. I, just, I mean, he would have hit eight hundred. He would have hit eight hundred, no doubt in my mind. He would have hit eight hundred. Yeah, if they gave him a contract in 07. Oh. or oh eight. Yeah, yeah. yeah I wish he wouldn't have been shorted where it was at. I also wish that he probably wouldn't have cheated, but here we are. Here we are. Yeah. Here we are. I can only dream about the Bonds versus A-Rod home run derby. Oh, oh man. man. It could still happen. I mean, look at A-Rod. That's a, that's a, that's a well-kept individual. Put him in Colorado. I would watch that. You know, like they do those like pay-per-view boxing matches with like 60-year-old guys now. I would totally watch just like Griffey <laughs> Jr. Right. hitting home runs. I'd pay 20 bucks to see that hell yeah we should th- there should be a tournament or right, i there should be a tournament like with like griffey um canseco because because why not um it bonds um uh, man and i want it to be like the old home run derby like my, my parents used to watch back in the oh, day the right yeah. yeah right like oh he's got three in a row that's a 500 dollars bonus right and <laughs> actually give him 500 bucks right it's just all in 20 so because i'm walking ATM. out of there with a fat wad of cash Right, <laughs> <laughs> that'd be awesome. I think we do that. I think that's got to get done. Um, I know a few people. I'll see if I can make some calls. Yeah, make some make some. What 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 good are you, Jim? Come on, man. Make make hey, a man. make a retired home run derby. David Cohn follows me. I I've got it. I Dude. can get there. <laughs> David David Cohn follows you. Dude, lots of people follow me. But a lot of people I'm, do follow you. I fucking wrote a book or two. <laughs> you wrote like David Cohn doesn't follow me. <laughs> no. Okay, I'll, I'll give him a call and let him know. Right? And, uh, okay, and, I don't follow him either. Hey, Coney. Nah. <laughs> yeah. All right. I, I don't have that much power. All right, you guys ready to start episode number sixty now? Yeah. All right, let's do it. <laughs> the 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 extra rating rule. That's right. <laughs> Well, Eric, thank, thanks again, man. I appreciate you coming by and hanging out with us. And, uh, you know, ne- next time, sooner than later, I hope. Yeah, next time I won't have a book to talk about, so we can just do that for any Yes! The whole time.